Here we go. Neutron, proton, mass effect, lyrical oxidation, you're irrelevant, mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you're on, transuranium, if y'all was uranium, molecule spontaneous combustion, Bam. law of definite proportion, gain ink weight, I'm every element around. Welcome to Spark Science, where we explore stories of human curiosity. My name is Regina Barber de Graff. I am an astrophysicist, educator, cartoon enthusiast, and I'm here with my co-host, Jordan Baker. Hello. Hello. Uh, my name is Jordan Baker. I'm an astro-interested person. Yeah, okay. Does that work? Astro-hobbyist. Astro-hobbyist. Yeah, yeah. Not even, but <laughs> <laughs> it makes it makes it sound important. Yeah. What have you been doing lately, Jordan? Doing some shows at the upfront now. Uh, you are good. Yeah. Okay. you know, maternity leave doesn't work with... It's paternity leave for you. Oh, right, yeah. Oh, okay. Because there's a P there. <laughs> I'm such a jerk. Let me correct you on air. Yeah, it's paternity. Yeah, jeez. Yeah, you should even know Jeez. that. I'm sorry. It's okay. So I'm glad you're doing more shows at the upfront. Do you do any, like, space-related shows? Because I think you, like, mm-hmm. not you, but other people do, right? Right, we do a uh, Space Trek. Yeah. But you hate Star Trek, so how do you feel about Space Trek? I try not to do those shows. <laughs> but <laughs> you there's, support... like, a holodeck, and they're, like, the Lido deck, and all I can really... It's like a cruise ship. You just kind of, like, Lido deck. We are here to t- today to talk to two guests, which are veterans, Spark Science uh, veterans, and I'm going to introduce them, and then I'm going to let them talk about... We're going to talk about The Martian today, the movie. We're going to talk about Planetary Society. It's going to be awesome. We have veteran Dr. Melissa Rice. How Hello. are you doing? Doing great. Are you happy to be back with Sparks? Thrilled to be back. With me, really. With you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this guy's all right, too. Right. right. And the other guest, do you want to introduce him? Because I think you might know his, like, official title. I'm going to let you introduce our next guest. Okay. Well, let me introduce the director of advocacy at the Planetary Society, which is the world's largest nonprofit space organization, Casey Dreyer. There you go. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> wow. That was way better than I could do. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I held my tongue, but Jordan, I think the word you're looking for is astrophilic. Astrophilic. Yes, you are fond of astro. And the other thing, I, I had a question: yeah. Do they? Do, is it scientifically accurate? The shows that they do? Oh, absolutely not. That <laughs> would be because we. They said something about the tricorder. I don't know what it does. Hey, but iPhones. Then, but there's actually like a thing, right? That people isn't there like a they're a trying contest? To, they're to, trying to do the tricorder. One. Yeah. Well, well, here's the question: As an expert in improv comedy, how would it be to construct an improv challenge around a scientifically accurate sci-fi themed? improv show scientifically accurate scientifically so accurate have to study beforehand right, well yeah. or you have people who are familiar with the concepts of science that doesn't sound funny <laughs> <laughs> it could be awesome it could be more it'd like be one of those uh, dark comedies that like three people get <laughs> <laughs> well casey i do want to talk about the planetary society and our listeners might remember you from our pluto revealed show which you helped organize that whole event and that was just really awesome. I, we didn't really talk about the Planetary Society that much in that in that episode. So what I want to do, Melissa's already told us her backstory and why she got into science. So I want to let you do the same thing. So tell me how you got into the Planetary Society. How'd you get this job? Take me through like, I liked science when I was blah. Okay. Well, <clears throat> I just got a book that my parents sent me for my birthday that I had written when I was eight years old. Oh, I saw it. That's yes. right. Yeah. That was called Mission to Jupiter. And it was all about, uh, as you might guess, a mission to Jupiter. 
Of course, it had a lot of strong robotic components, so lots of drawings of the Voyager and Pioneer spacecraft. Uh, so as a kid, I really was into this stuff, and actually particularly really into the robotic spaceflight side. I used to go to the library and find schematic drawings of the Pioneer 10 and 11. 11 as an 8-year-old. Uh, and younger. Right. And, and, and slightly older. Just to look at how, how NASA and JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, builds these things and goes out to explore the solar system. I was a physics major in college. And Wait, I, hold on. Can I take pictures of this book and show them to our listeners? You can take the picture of a cover, maybe. It's yeah, not okay. very... <laughs> there, there's probably one doesn't I was, want the secrets getting out. <laughs> well, I was eight, and there was some significant intellectual property theft involved in the creation <laughs> right. of this book. Right. Uh, so, you know, I, I... I'll take a picture of the cover for our There listeners. you go, the cover, if, you're, okay. if people are very interested. But uh, the point is, from a very early age, I was interested in this stuff. I don't right. know where the interest came from. I just, it clicked with me. I uh, went into uh, undergraduate, promptly discovered that I did not like doing research, finished my undergraduate, and was finished with formal education basically after that i was a uh, systems programmer did web design and back-end work for many years did you learn all that on your own did you was yes. it self-taught okay yep. i can't do that <laughs> that's why i, have I don't a know PhD. You, you also have a phd <laughs> a significant part of being a graduate student is teaching yourself how it's, things actually work that's right? true just not programming uh, and then the the big thing so i met melissa uh i should say that i'm married to melissa that was part of my yeah body. what yeah we should, we should let our <laughs> listeners know why you've heard them before on a previous show and why we're having them again they actually just happen to also be married just uh, full disclosure yeah well it's actually it's not an accident i, I specifically <laughs> wanted to marry a mars scientist so i didn't have to go to graduate school that oh, was my whole plan wow time. you was, planned that out well good yeah. thinking yeah yeah i was <laughs> i got very fortunate let's say this <laughs> and so melissa was a mars scientist or becoming training to be a mars scientist she still is and she still is well, she was training at the time as a graduate student <laughs> yeah and we went to see the launch of the curiosity rover from cape canaveral down in florida and what year was this that was that happened 2011 okay four years ago just about now actually it launched Four years and three days ago. Yeah, it was Thanksgiving weekend yeah. that it launched. And were you, Melissa, were you associated at all with it when it launched? Like, were you doing any, like, graduate work, like, associated? Yeah, my graduate work had been with the previous generation Mars rover missions. Okay. So the Spirit and Opportunity rovers. And at that time, I was finishing up my PhD. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next, trying to get a job, some kind of postdoc position, and hoping that I, there was a way I could get my foot in the door to go and work on the Curiosity mission. So I think at the time that it launched, I had just about lined up my postdoc at Caltech. Okay. So there was hope that I would be able to be on the inside when it landed. But when we went to the launch, the future was pretty uncertain. So you're looking at this and you're like, I hope I can work on that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. okay. First of all, I hope it doesn't blow up. Right. Yeah. Second of all, I hope I can work yeah. on that. Jumping back four years, so that's when it happened. Uh, we yeah. saw the launch. If you're listening and you have not seen a rocket launch in person... You need to go and do that at some point in your life. It is spectacular beyond words. It is way different than seeing it on TV where you're having, you know, these very close-up shots and a little announcer very calmly intonating, you know, and now the rocket's going up and everything's to be going high, max Q, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like, uh, like a golf yeah, exactly. It's about as ex <laughs> golf is significantly more exciting than rock watching a rocket launch on TV. But when you're there, you're sitting with 10,000 people. And most of those people you're sitting with, that, and Melissa, we were with the team and the engineers. They had all worked on this mission for the last eight years to prepare it. And so everyone there is a little tense. 
that yeah. hopefully please don't blow up. The number one thing on everyone's mind, please don't blow up. Because right. this is a $2 billion rover. You don't have a spare one sitting that you can just pop on the next rocket. And so you're sitting there in the crowd. You see way off in the distance a rocket, you know, maybe the size of your thumb, you know, if you're holding out your arm and sticking it up. That's about oh, as big oh. as it looks in the distance. You're about five hmm. miles away. Is that it, right? About five. Jordan's thumb is bigger than mine. Yeah. Yeah. You look at your thumb. own thumb, not, yeah. not somebody else's <laughs> thumb. Someone else's thumb can be variable distances away from <laughs> right, exactly. That's yeah. What, yeah. So anyway, you see this rocket in the distance. You get the big countdown clock. Crowd gets really quiet. And then you start going through, if you've seen Apollo 13, they go do the go, no-go checklist. So, you know, they do flight, go, avionics, go, you know, and they're counting down. You're and like, you can hear it? Like, it's they, They're, they're putting this over speakers. Okay. And this you're thinking, and already this is, like, the coolest thing I've ever seen. And then you hit zero, and then the rocket just, boom, just, like, shoots up. And the flame is so bright, you can't look at it directly. And wow. then the sound hits you three seconds later. Right. And like it physically hits physically you. hits you. Yeah. And you feel like it can't get any louder and then it gets louder. And you just are completely overwhelmed. It's like a religious experience uh, yeah. in essence. And you, it just curiosity was spectacular because that rocket had all these extra boosters on it, which made it shoot up extra fast. It went through a cloud and popped out the other side of the cloud. And then the whole crowd just went nuts. They just yeah. went crazy crazy and people were crying and, and they're screaming. like strangers hugging and stuff yeah i mean it <laughs> yeah. was it's an emotional moment when yeah. you see that go up it was powerful that's the day that made me want to work for the planetary society was wow. seeing that because at the time there were no more missions planned to go to to go to mars wow. and i wanted to help make sure that there always would be another mission going off to explore in the solar system because it's an incredible thing that we as a society do that is one of the few things that i think are unambiguously good Right? It's a very noble pursuit to say, what's out there? Well, let's all work together and answer that question in a peaceful way. It, it's spectacular. And so then to see it, it's almost like the, the amount of people and technology and effort that went in to build the rocket, build the thing on top of it, the people to make sure it launched safely, who, you know, flying rockets are hard. It takes a huge industrial base to make a rocket. It's like building a pyramid that you launch into space every five weeks or something like that. <laughs> and it's just, you know, to see that, it's one of the best things we do. We should nurture and support and share that as much as possible. And that was the revelation that made me, you know, essentially switch my career into space policy, which is what I do now. How did that happen, though? How did you get a connection? So it's one thing to be like, now I want to do this. But how do you actually make that into an actual mm -hmm. thing? Like, Well, the trick is, for anyone looking for a job, is you show up at the door of the business you want to work at like a sad puppy. And then you don't leave <laughs> until they take pity on you and give you a job. Right. But don't do it That's, in a creepy way or the police will come. Yeah. You got to kind of play that. You right. got to find that line <laughs> yes. on your own. Yeah. But that, I mean, uh, as Melissa said. That's what I'm doing wrong. That's yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So as, as Melissa said, she got her postdoc at California Institute of Technology, it, which is in Pasadena, California. I think everyone who watches Big Bang Theories, you know, knows about these. Yeah, right. I, I no longer <laughs> need to explain this. Right? <laughs> no, but it's um, okay. And uh, 
uh, the Planetary Society is also in Pasadena, California. Not by accident. It was started by a professor at Caltech and also the director of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at the time, Bruce Murray, in 1980. And okay. so it's it's kind of equidistant between the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and the California Institute of Technology. Well, so they could just, like, drive there because they both were yeah. working. Okay. Yep. And so uh, we were there for a couple of years. And so I was there in proximity and kind of wormed my way in. Uh, into that position you just hovered in a sense yeah i mean i was <laughs> able to i mean to go in. into more technical <laughs> things that people more may, may not care about but effectively what i did i had web design experience background systems management programming that right. was my foot in the door and then hey they also had a connection stuff. yeah that's right jim bell that was the president of the planetary society is also was melissa's graduate advisor Okay. And he will say... Yeah, that's no, no little thing. Well, he would say that... <laughs> and he, actually, I, I, it's I, not I, like you knew the security guard. <laughs> well, he made the... I mean, as he said, tell He made an introduction. Me. Yeah, but yeah. he made he clear that he could not do anything about them actually hiring me. Okay, well, that's right. good. It wasn't all cronyism <laughs> no, from not, the start. No, not purely. Though that not $100 purely. I slipped him at the beginning couldn't have hurt. <laughs> that was the director then. Who is, you know, he who was is the, the director? Well, he's the president. President, so sorry. He's he was, the president of the board of directors. Okay. The CEO then and now, I assume you're asking about, yes, is yeah. uh, Bill Nye. The so he was guy. the CEO then as well. He well was. He was, I guess this is 2011. This is not that long ago. Yeah, so. four years. Yeah. So your boss is Bill Nye. My boss is Bill Nye. What did you know about the Planetary Society before this like revelation? And what did, like, Melissa, what did you know about the Planetary Society before all of this? Yeah, I had been a card-carrying member of the Planetary Society for a couple of years. Okay. You know, in part because my boss, my graduate advisor, Jim Bell, was the president of the right. organization, right. so no pressure there. Right. But, you know, everyone in the space science community knows and respects the Planetary Society as an advocacy organization, as an education organization, as a, and it has a history of being an intellectual force as well. So Carl Sagan was one of the founding members of the, uh, of the society, and he you know, really gave it that that kind of intellectual prowess, as did the other two founders, Bruce Murray and Lou Friedman as well. So it, it's very well respected. So it had always just been on my radar. Uh, of course, I didn't think that I would be married into the organization like right. I am now, but but it had always been been on my mind. Before we start talking about like the Martian and stuff, how is the Planetary Society linked to like let's say NASA and stuff like that how where where is that connection so the planetary society is completely independent yeah, it's okay. a it's a non-profit and that was by design and the idea was in 1980 the reason this came to be was actually it, the roots go back to the viking missions the very first missions to land on mars the robotic missions and it was a huge deal, right? The first time in all of human history that anything from Earth had softly landed, I should say, on Mars right. in 1976 and, yeah. and uh, the two Viking missions. And Carl Sagan, who was on the mission, was and Bruce Murray, who was director of JPL at the time, were disappointed by the lack of media coverage mm, okay. about this monumental event. And there is this widespread, I think it tied into the malaise of the 1970s, idea where it says well nothing is that everything's crumbling nothing's falling everything's falling apart and they say no 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 space is incredible and look at what we have built and why does the public and we're hearing that the public is not interested i bet you the public is interested and so the experiment was what if we made an organization for the public that promoted space science and exploration could that survive 
And it was a resounding yes because it became the fastest growing organization in the 1980s. And it had uh, over 100,000 members in five years. And it's completely independent, completely funded, I should say, by small donations by individuals across the world. Wow. So it's not like we take a bunch of NASA money and then promote NASA. It's not like we take a bunch of corporate money and promote interest in aerospace. We are completely funded by members who pay dues and then donations on top of that. And that has allowed us, we've survived on that model for 35 years. This is our 35th anniversary this year. And the organization has been growing. It has been hiring lots of new, young, lots of young new people, lots of new energy. Like you. Like, well, <laughs> but we have a new headquarters and, and Bill Nye coming in in 2010 marked a big transition in this new era of the Planetary Society. Right. And we're carrying that forth very proudly. People do care about this. And what's the ultimate way to test if someone cares about something? They put their money behind it. That has been proven true for the last 35 years. So the Planetary Society, we're, we're very proud of this. And, and again, what Melissa mentioned, that the society, it's not just, so my job is promoting exploration, space exploration, to Congress, to the White House, to getting our members engaged and excited about it. But we also have a huge amount of outreach, education, uh, people who blog really detailed levels about what NASA and the European Space Agency and other countries are doing in space in exploration. We have people who cover human spaceflight. We have people who cover robotic spaceflight. We are building things. We built a light sail and a CubeSat last year. We right. did a big Kickstarter. Uh, we raised $1.2 million on Kickstarter. We're going to launch that mission next year, 2016. Okay. What's we, that mission? Uh, light sail. Okay. The still, okay. <laughs> light sail B. So we okay. had a test mission this year. We're going to do true solar sailing in 2016. Okay. Uh, we also do other crazy stuff we well not crazy in a good way you know exciting yeah. stuff we do an optical study search with a harvard professor up in cambridge massachusetts we do a planetary deep drill project where we're helping to fund this you know deep drill that can theoretically prove technology that you could use to drill into the through the surface of europa for example i want to talk about that some more okay. but I'm gonna, we're going to take a break so we do lots of stuff but i want to come back and talk about the movie the martian and other missions that are like real and not real. Talk about some proposed missions that Planetary Society wants to promote and then also kind of get more into this like drilling, what the heck is a light sail, and we'll come back and we'll talk about that. Welcome back. We're talking about the Planetary Society with Casey, and he brought his wonderful uh, wife along, Melissa, who has been here 800 times 800 on the show. Times, yes. Uh, Even when you guys aren't recording, I'm here. Right. Just hanging right. out. Yeah. Always here. Show veteran. Yeah. 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 We've been using that so much, that term. The, the show veteran? Show veteran, yeah. <laughs> Dang it. Uh, that well, word is, is a there show another one, another no, word we could use? I don't think there is. But we were talking about the really cool programs that the Planetary Society is promoting, wants these missions to happen, but also ones that they made themselves. So can you tell us a little bit about this light sail that you were talking about? So light sail is a concept of solar sailing, which is the sun, you know, gives off, you know, light, which are photons. Photons have momentum. 
right? You you know this I, way yeah. better than I do because probably you're not. The, uh, this <laughs> <laughs> and so in photon basically it imparts a little push when photon hits you. It's very small push, right? But if say you build a very big reflective sail, and the overall mass, the amount of like, weight essentially of your spacecraft is very small compared to that sail. You can actually use the force imparted on that sail by the sun's light to effectively get pushed and to use that to maneuver and get propulsed in space. And suddenly, you know, when you're in space, the sun never sets, right? You always see the sun unless you're behind something. And this is a way to potentially have an unlimited energy source to use to travel around our solar system is through solar sailing. This concept has been around for years, I think. Arthur C. Clarke even wrote a really nice short story about this. But really? He, he did for everything. For every... <laughs> and, but you can... Ascend, it's, it's been not really proven. The Japanese launched a test thing in, 2000, in the 2000s. But the light sail is a CubeSat, which is a very small, specific size, about loaf of bread-sized CubeSat, which fits into a standard configuration that NASA and other organizations and universities can use to build small spacecraft these days. And it unfurled 10-meter sail into space and that was our first test and we have another one of these that is actually going to do full sailing that we did the kickstarter for and that's going to launch next year on a falcon heavy rocket the second launch of the falcon heavy this mega rocket which is going to be awesome to see launch so who makes this falcon heavy this is spacex okay so this is spacex's up super upgrade to the falcon 9 which they're using to launch things to low earth orbit now okay. falcon heavy launches 53,000 kilograms to low earth orbit it's a lot and of has stuff. it successfully launched yet it has not even been tested yet okay so this Uh-oh. is why we're on the second launch <laughs> And it's essentially three Falcons strapped together, but that, there's a lot more complexity to that, as any rocket scientist, I'm sure, could tell you. <laughs> the, so the idea is, though, when we launch this little CubeSat into space, the, the sails go out, and then we can rotate the sails uh, in reference to the sun, and just like tacking into the wind or out of the wind in, in a sailboat... You can maneuver and build up your orbits around Earth and fly all over the place. Wow! Isn't isn't the main concern of uh, of all those solar sails out there the space pirates? That's true. Get a hold of them. (laughs) You look so serious. You talk about (laughs) real question. (laughs) You talk about international waters. This is way worse, right? right? Yeah, Yeah. this is interstellar waters. Yeah. Yeah. So this would be fun. This is one star interplanetary. Interplanetary. Yeah. 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 We'll find out. I, that would be a lovely problem to have, honestly. It would be very newsworthy, and lots of people would be following it. So that'll be right. happening fall of next year, as currently planned, with the SpaceX launch plans. And this is the first time that we've ever done solar sailing, attempted to do it in something as small as a CubeSat. And CubeSats are... So many people are doing CubeSats. These are the cheapest... You know, universities can fund a CubeSat. You can do these for a hundred thousand, couple hundred thousand dollars up to single-digit millions wow. of dollars. You know, quote-unquote cheap, but for space, it's cheap. And the idea is that we're going to have, a, we're going to be putting a lot of this information back out to the world. So other people, once we demonstrate the feasibility of the technology, uh, other people are going to be free to use it. Yeah. And that's going to be one of the ways in which we can advance space science and exploration is to try to get more people to use innovative technologies in space help lower the cost, you know, increase access to space so more people can get their ideas, science instruments, you know, test things up there to see what they can do. So that's one of the big goals with LightSail. So is the Planetary Society um, advocating for human missions like 
human missions to Mars like the movie The Martian, which we, Casey and Melissa and I, actually saw together on opening night. Are they advocates for it? Um, Like, manned missions to Mars, or is that not something at the Planetary Society talks about? No, we're absolutely a human spaceflight to Mars is one of the big programs that we've just developed, a, a big report and workshop that we've been interacting with NASA and people in Congress about the last six months. We have a slightly different approach because the Martian had the benefit of uh, being fictional, so they could just assume NASA's budget was also fictional. What? Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Fiction? I know. Well, that, it was funny. Uh, Melissa and I and other people we know who are scientists and people who do space policy, The it, it was a great movie. I loved it. It was very fun. And it's fun, to, in a way, it's fun to nitpick it too. But in the movie and in the book, they assume an Apollo-like level of NASA spending which we have not had since Apollo. Apollo. You know, actually not even Apollo since 1966 was the peak funding for Apollo. And then wow. it started to crater thereafter. So actually you hit your peak funding for Apollo 3 years before your first moon landing. Mm. And the kind of mission that they had in that movie was uh the the scope and the size of the spacecraft, the number of times they had been. You're talking about a NASA budget that I'm just going to pluck out a number maybe 2ish maybe two and a half times what it is now. <laughs> so how did, how did you like it, Melissa? How did you like the, the movie, Martian? Because we're just going to get into that spoiler alert. Yeah, I was totally entertained by The Martian, both the first and second time I saw it. Totally fun movie, fun to pick apart. And movies that have good science, I think, are more fun to pick apart than the ones that are just straight-out trash. Right, because they know it. Yeah, it's only fun to nitpick at things when there's not a huge glaring error staring in your face <laughs> to begin with. So, yeah, the, the Martian was, you know, just from from pure Hollywood cinematography to my analytical scientist nitpickiness. Um, thumbs up all around. What I do want to ask, though, is how accurate was, like, the... Um the landscapes, because, I mean, you're a planetary geologist. Like, you see what Mars looks like every day. That's what you do. How accurate was that in the movie? Yeah, so I was actually very disappointed in the landscapes in the movie. Um, I was super excited when I saw the trailer and got a glimpse of what the landscapes were going to be. And, you know, the, the what you see in the trailer looks amazing. And it is amazing. It's this kind of desert butte landscape, layered sandstone rock, active sand dunes drifted on them. You have all of the good shades of brownish, reddish, orangish salmon hues. And so it looks great. The problem with the movie, though, is that that landscape never changes. Yeah. So Mark Watney goes into his Mars buggy and he's driving around thousands of kilometers in the end. And every single shot that you see out the window, every single large scale panorama is that same type of desert landscape. And that's just not giving Mars enough credit geologically. Mars, you know, it's it's a dead, cold, dry, barren wasteland, but it still has geologic diversity. <laughs> and so I would have liked to have seen him drive out of those uh, butte topography, yeah. out of the dunes, into just something that looks different. And right. there were a couple very famous spots on Mars that this character drives through in the book, um, any that he visits in the movie, but they don't look anything like we as Mars scientists know they do on Mars. Right. So, for example, Mark Watney's character drives over to where the Pathfinder uh, spacecraft is and digs it up. First of all, that thing 
wouldn't be buried by sand by now. Right. Uh, but anyway. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's, oh, a ro- no. it's a rocky <laughs> landscape, not a sand sea. During uh, the 1990s, when the Pathfinder mission was going on, that was our only landed spacecraft. The only thing that had gotten to the surface of Mars softly since the Viking landers. 20 years. 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so there was this whole generation of Mars scientists reared on those images from the Pathfinder mission. And Pathfinder was a lander, so it only took pictures in a 360-degree view around right where it landed. And it had a little rover that was about the size of a microwave with six wheels driving around, but always in close range of the lander. So that one landscape from the Pathfinder landing site is very well known. They didn't even do it. And they didn't even do it. It wouldn't have been that hard. Yeah. You know, there are every, it looks like Arizona, right? Every picture from the Pathfinder min- mission has got these two two peaks off in the distance, and there's, you know, you got this rock over there and that rock over there, and, and scientists and members of the public who cared about these things, who looked at the pictures, would recognize them. So they had a really great opportunity to recreate that really famous, maybe the most famous landscape on Mars. And they didn't. They just covered it in sand. Do you think he would have made more in the box office if he was been more You know, when, we, when Gina and Casey and I were there on opening night looking around at all those empty seats, word had gotten out that it wasn't the I, accurate yeah. Pathfinder yeah. landscape. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People didn't come out. Right. Yeah. We don't get many science movies that right. are... And good movies. Hey, right. uh, Armageddon. Armageddon. <laughs> pretty, I mean, and they were just talking about the drilling. And yeah. they Independence drilled Day. Into an asteroid. Yeah, yes. Independence yeah. Day. Yeah, they say the word aliens in Independence Day, right? Well, they do. Like that in space. They do. They do. <laughs> that's yeah. exactly what we're, that's the thing. That's why I'm so excited, right? When something comes out, that's why we're all lined up. It's like, who? you know, just like when Interstellar came out. Yeah. It was like, hey, this isn't completely off the rails. Right. And it's like a serious take at what this incredible thing we've had. But And it and it actually made a lot of my students Interstellar very, very happy. For our listeners, you can go ahead and listen to our Interstellar review. Let's take a break and when we come back, I want to talk about this idea of what are we then leaving there? Like in the movie, he left his poo there. What are we leaving there with these missions? And then also want to talk about this idea of water on Mars that we keep on hearing in the news. So that's what we're going to talk about when we come back. Welcome back. We're talking with uh, Casey Dreyer and Dr. Melissa Rice about The Martian and also the Planetary Society and Missions to Mars, which is kind of a continuation of our first ever episode with Dr. Melissa Rice. But now we're talking about more specifically the movie, The Martian, that just came out and how accurate that is and how that relates to things that are actually happening. So last time we kind of left off, we were talking about microbes being left on Mars, or how much are we as humans kind of affecting the Martian environment? In reality, so in in the movie, as we were previously discussing about the yeah. dropping, so to speak, of you know the poo, Peru, but also just everything that they left on there. Yeah. And Watney, when his helmet broke, you know he's venting a lot of stuff. They were just littering that area of Mars with human bacteria. You know, all the microbiome, the macro, right? Micro, microbiome? I forget what it's called. Which uh, is a micro- It's micro- small, let's say Yeah, micro- a lot of bacteria, <laughs> yeah. right? By number of cells on our body, we're more bacteria than human. 
Right. And that means that they were just seeding bacteria all around their campsite on Mars. Right. They didn't have to worry about what is the real thing that NASA has. It's called the Office of Planetary Protection. And their whole job is to not let that ever happen. Right. We don't want to go if we're looking for life on Mars or any other place that is theoretically habitable at one point or now. We don't want to inadvertently, you know, quote unquote, discover our own bacteria all over it that we brought with us. Right. Mm -hmm. We need to keep it pure in a sense. It's, you know, it's like an ultra national park. You, you know, you have to be very, very careful. And they actually do this with all the spacecraft that they have sent to Mars, that NASA has sent to Mars. They have been sanitized in some way to get bacteria removed. For Viking, I think they actually baked them in a giant oven at 500 degrees, something like that, for yeah, a long time. Yeah, NASA has a good track record of sanitizing these things, but NASA's not the only one right. that has sent things to Mars. Right. And I don't know the history of the Soviet Union's spacecraft sterilization processes, but so, I imagine that those broken, busted up Soviet we have listeners in hard Russia. landers. You're great. Well, they're not as, they probably weren't as well, that's the thing, I don't think anyone really knows. They yeah, probably I'm, weren't as well sterilized. So we're not all sure if everybody's down with OPP? Yeah. Office of the Planetary <laughs> Oh, well, <no. laughs> So, gotta protect the planet. So, I yeah. mean, this is NASA's thing, but it's actually in the Treaty of Outer Space. It's actually called the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. And it, all countries are supposed to adhere to some degree of it. Now, you know, it, it's it's a little vague. And so, Na again, actually, NASA doesn't even know, really, what level of sterilization is necessary. They use Viking as their precedent. Hmm. And Viking was just kind of pulled out of the air. They just baked it a lot. Well, I, I do want to get back to the, the movie, though, because in, in the movie, the, there's another part that we talked about a lot after after the showing. And it was this idea, again, spoilers alert, alert where there, there there's this part where he has to dig up the energy source. And it's like super dangerous because there's this flag and it's like, don't dig me up. I'll kill you if it breaks. Like, you'll get killed by radiation. Um, and you told me that that wasn't true. So can you, like, for our listeners, explain if they remember that part of the movie why is that untrue? Yeah, he needs heat, so he digs up the radioisotope thermoelectric generator, the RTG. And RTGs are actually real things. They use them to power the Curiosity rover. They're used to power the Voyager spacecraft. Basically, anything that goes to a place you can't use solar panels. You use something that generates heat, and then you turn heat into electricity. And you use the electricity. Um, they, the thing that they use to generate the heat is a piece of radioactive... Uh, it's an element called plutonium, which most people have heard of. It is not the bomb-making one, right? That's plutonium-239. That's the one you use to blow stuff up with. This is plutonium-238, the good kind of plutonium. <laughs> okay. One number away. <laughs> it is. I mean, that's kind of it. One, one neutron, right? Away. Well, what was used in the first Back to the Future movie? The first um, back to the future I movie. think they just used plutonium. Okay, got it. So it was <laughs> plutonium. I'm not well, crazy. The well, Libyans wanted the bomb making plutonium, plutonium, so it's got to be 239, right? Dr. Brown does not specify. Yeah, I'm assuming it's 239, and that's much, yeah. much more dangerous. Plutonium 238. Um, it's radioactive, but it, it's just in radioactive decay, right? So it's plutonium, and it turns into lead eventually, right? And it goes when it decays, it gives off heat, and they use the heat. So plutonium-238, wonderful story about space policy that I won't go into, but it's fascinating stuff. And we have to, it used to be a side effect of making bombs that we had this, that we then used for the peaceful exploration of the solar system. Now we have to actually make it 
and it takes a long time to do it. Mm. But the nice thing about plutonium-238 is that it's not, as radioactive material goes, not the most dangerous thing. It is dangerous if you in- inhale it. Um, okay. However, they make it into this almost indestructible piece of ceramic. So there's, like, no way to inhale it. Yeah, they call it plutonium oxide, and then they encase it in a graphite sheen, uh, also very, very tough, and then they encase that in titanium, basically. And oh, these okay. are all fueled inside. <laughs> these are very tough things. They're designed to survive rocket explosions. So him, like, like knocking it over in his, like, vehicle... Totally fine. That's would have been fine. Yeah, they have a story. The SNAP, the, these, these were military weather satellites in the 1960s. They were using plutonium on them because they had too much. They didn't know what to do with it, so they put it on everything. The rocket that was launching it exploded, and it had plutonium in it, and kept, you know, encased all safely. And what did they do? They went and actually recovered the plutonium power source and just shoved it in the next one to power that. It survived the explosion. It was good enough to use and launch <laughs> wow. into space. That's so, how tough these things are. And then the, also the other thing about why it's not super dangerous, you know, the different types of radiation, right? Yeah. You could walk everyone through, what is it, gamma rays, uh, right. alpha particles, beta, dec- you know, uh, that's electrons, right? Um, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I did poor, poorly Jordan, Jordan, in particle physics. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. yeah. <laughs> That's it. I, okay, good. I did poorly in, in, in particle physics. So the, so the point is, the members, gamma rays are the dangerous, really the dangerous, yes. the high energy uh, photons. I, I think, know right? that much. Yeah, and, and uh, alpha decay, alpha particles are basically um, uh, helium, right? Uh, two protons. Yes. Right? Uh, coming out. <laughs> And uh, those things are very heavy and slow. You could stop them with a piece of paper. So if, if Watney was really worried, he could have r- rolled a newspaper around it, and that would have got most of the radioactive decay. Wow. That's why I brought it up, because I wanted you to take that apart. There were so many great things about that movie, but the most scary part for me was that radioactive part, and you're like, no, that's, yeah. not, that's is, not the scary this part. This is why people <laughs> are wrong when they protest. So this happened in 1997. They were launching a mission to Saturn, uh, un uncrewed one, a robotic one, uh, to Saturn called Cassini. And Cassini's mm-hmm. been this massive success. Great. It's a fantastic mission. And you had protesters protesting the launch because it had plutonium on it. And it just got kicked up in the news. And plutonium, they heard radiation, radioactive plutonium equates to evil, right? Right. And it was misplaced because, no, 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 this is the good kind of plutonium. This is 238. But they didn't want to hear about isotopes. They, they just heard the word plutonium. Right. And so... Plutonium-238, great example of the safe, peaceful, civil uses of radioactive material. Well, I w- I'm, I'm a big fan of it, honestly. I, <laughs> yeah. I can talk a way long time about plutonium-238. It's how I run my car. It's yeah. how I run my house. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little inefficient when you're using the uh, the heat to energy, but it's just cool. I mean, what the story of how we rebuilt our ability to make it again yeah. barely happened. Uh, that could be a whole episode of your show of we'll how we now make plutonium-238 And then I'll again. get protested. Hey, you know what? <laughs> all all uh, news is good news, right? I don't know. I do want to bring us back to Cassini. So when we're, when we're watching the movie, the good thing about The Martian it is, is, like you said, it helps the audience and helps the public be more excited about space exploration. But I think for me, Cassini did that when I was younger because we were visiting the moons of Saturn and also any mission that's going to go to the moons of Jupiter, which you just talked about Europa. I remember talking to you, Melissa and Casey about these awesome missions that we have 
we have plans for, though. Like, you were talking about this submarine that we want to send to Titan, which is the moon of Saturn, because it has oceans. Like, how... And, and Europa, we were just talking about drilling into the ice, and maybe there's... I mean, we're pretty sure there's liquid water down there, you know, so... Not just any liquid... Four times, two to four times the amount of liquid water that the Earth has. That's crazy. That's a lot of water. Yeah. That's a massive ocean. What's the deepest part of Mariana Trench? And Earth's ocean is like what, fifteen kilometers deep, something like that. Ooh, I yep. don't know. Thanks, Jordan. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Europa, they think those are eighty kilometer oceans, and it's a global ocean. It's at least think. twice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's true. That is a true statement. <laughs> yes. It is at least twice. <laughs> and but uh, Europa is an amazing place and an amazing for the potential it has. Right. And anyone who has read. You know, the 2001 books are seen, the fewer people who have seen the movie 2010, A Space Odyssey. I've seen uh, parts uh, of it Odyssey and I was like, boo. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> the books are more fun. But anyway, everyone knows about the potential of Europa. You've got basically everything you th- we think we need to have life, right? We right. have liquid water. Right. We have it in contact with rocks so it has nutrients, right? There's probably volcanic vents. It has heat and energy. Yeah. And it has time. That's the other one. We think... Well, we, scientists, I should say. I'm not an yeah. official it's scientist. It's not just you and Bill Nye. It's not just me and Bill Nye. This <laughs> yeah. isn't our crack by the Actual scientists with, with actual degrees from very respectable institutions <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, believe that the oceans of Europa have been around for four billion years. And so we have this incredible... I've talked to scientists who tell me if we don't find some kind of life, most people think microbial, but if we don't find some kind of life then we have to reevaluate why there's life on Earth, right? Then we're missing something if it isn't there after this amount of time. That's incredibly exciting. And the only thing that's stopping us from going is our own desire to go. Well, and the radiation. Well, the radiation is a solvable... I mean, that's the thing about uh, space, where we are in space these days. That's what's so exciting about it, is that there's very little... For robotics, I should say. Humans, that's a tougher problem. But for robotics, there's nothing that's kind of a total you know showstopper we can solve the radiation problem even right? for humans trying to get to Europa? humans are different okay Robots. robots. If you want to send a robot to Europa, you can solve the radiation problem. Got you can it. solve these are problems that we were just talking about earlier. These are problems that we can solve if we attack them in a methodical way. Right. And you know, we just need the the money and the time and the commitment to do it. And we're not even talking about money in tens or hundreds of billions of dollars cents, right? We're talking about single digit billions spread out over ten years. You know, that's we, we spend in this country two billion dollars a year on dog toys. Right, not dog and cat toys, just dog toys. That's per year, and we're talking about two hundred to three hundred million per year on a mission. You're just to bringing Europa. that up because you don't have a dog. Uh, well, that's true. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> like someone's a dog. Cat toy is totally justified, <laughs> right? <laughs> but again, well, that, my point is yeah. here is that places like Europa, if we want to know, does life exist in the solar system? And this is life with Mars too, the beyond Earth. 
if we want to look, we can look. There's nothing really stopping us. It's Just not money. like there's some in. It's not like we're in the 1890s and can't even fathom, you know, electricity barely yet, right? Or we don't even know what galaxies are. That didn't happen until the 1920s. Yes, right. And it's a spectacular <laughs> capability that we have. And so with with Europa, we're starting a mission. And one of the big focuses of my life in the last three years has been to start a mission to Europa. And it doesn't mean it's going to happen. That means we need to make sure it continues. And this is, I mean, essentially what I'm, my job is now, you know, and getting our members, the members of the Planetary Society, making sure that this mission continues for the next, it's going to take eight years to build it. Mm-hmm. It's going to take anywhere from three to eight years to get there. Right. So we're talking mid-2020s. But this is the problem we face at with space. Space is big. I do want to talk real quick to Melissa about this whole big news about water on Mars. Because we, we said we were going to get there and we didn't. But I, I want to talk about it now. So we're hearing all these things in the, the news about water on Mars. Can you tell us what that means exactly? And then if you want to see more Mars movies like The Martian. So that, and that's how we'll end today. All right. Well, let me first of all clarify that I think you're talking about the Water on Mars news announcement that came out late September. Yes. 2015. Yes. Uh, there's a joke among scientists that every couple of months, NASA puts out a big press release, Water Found on Mars. Yes, it's true. And, and it's kind of true. And I, I'm glad that people aren't getting tired of hearing that news in a different flavor every so often. But what happened in September was... Um, NASA's, NASA promoted the press conference um, with kind of the tagline, Mars Mystery Solved, or at least that's, that's what... It's a pretty big statement. That's yeah. a big statement. And the mystery, you know, those of us in the know were kind of scanning our brains for what, what big mystery could this be? And uh, my guess was that this had to do with the origin of what are called the recurring slope lineae. So these, the well, <laughs> obviously, it. even the most dim-witted individual <laughs> yeah. with his degree in Martian geology. Um, so these RSL, recurring slope lineae, are little dark streaks that appear and disappear on the slopes of craters. And it's been a mystery what forms them. Are they little dry dust avalanches, um, just dry material moving downhill? Or could they be some kind of liquid flowing downhill and then evaporating? So that that had always been the speculation. And that was my guess for what this big Mars mystery solved would be. And that's what it turned out to be. So You win. I won. I should have put money on that one. (laughs) So the announcement was that there had been a detection from one of the orbital spectrometers on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is up orbiting Mars, uh, pointing its instruments down, taking incredibly high-resolution pictures and um, spectrographic data of the surface. And what they saw were these signatures of salts on these little dark streaks, the RSL, and those are salts that had to have formed in water. So that it's not a direct detection of water on Mars, but it's an inference that these little dark streaks that occur and then disappear are actually very, very salty water flowing downhill. That's awesome, though. Yeah. It's like yeah. Mars tears. <laughs> the salty Mars tears yeah. dripping down the face of a Martian crater. I'm sick. Yeah. <laughs> 
because we're leaving our microbes there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're trying not Get to. Get your old rovers off me. I know. <laughs> it's like a parking lot now. There was a lot of a lot of hype about what does this mean for Mars and humans on Mars? And basically, these are just little ephemeral flash-in-the-pan trickles of water. And like how are, big are we talking about? Like a creek or... Yeah. Not even that. We're talking, yeah, Nooksack we're talking river. about, uh, yeah. like when you're, maybe when you're washing the car with a hose and you've got all that water running drowned to the storm drain in the street. Wow, that's like, not a these lot. Are, these are pretty, pretty small amounts of water. On pretty amazing we can see that, though. Yeah. From orbit. It was discovered yeah. in, from orbital space Yeah, program. and that's why it been, had been so hard to get good spectral readings of these things for so long. Because the resolution of that chrism instrument, the spectrometer that studies these things, is about 18 meters. So that's, um, that's pretty small in the scheme of the surface of a planet. Right. That's, uh-huh. yeah. But still, these little uh, RSL, these little streaks on these hill slopes, were much smaller than that 18-meter pixel size. So it was really hard to get a compositional reading of what these things were. It was just, they were kind of washed out by everything else filling that 18-meter space. So it took a while to get this detection. And, you know, I think it didn't revolutionize our understanding of Mars. That was probably the favored hypothesis going into this, was that it was very small amounts of very, very salty water. So for humans going to Mars, does this mean anything? I don't know. It means that maybe there's a source of ice buried in the ground that heats up and oozes out when the Mm -hmm. sun hits it just right. Uh, Does that mean that humans can go and then grab that ice, chisel off a chunk, um, put it in their Coke or melt it and drink it? I don't know, because this also means that we have these huge planetary protection issues to deal with now. If we have these places where there's ice and transient liquid water those are the places that we're going to be forbidden from going to because those are are the places allowed to go there right now right yeah nasa is in the process right now of trying to select a landing site for the next rover going to mars this is a robot no humans involved uh it's going to mars in 2020 it doesn't even have a name yet we just call it mars 2020 so this robot, we're going to be trying to decide. <laughs> yeah. mean, so it's going to go to Mars, and we're trying to decide where on Mars it should land. And it's a really important decision because this is going to be the first rover, not just to go drive around, do some science on Mars, but this one for the first time is going to be collecting rock samples that will eventually be brought back to the Earth. So we've got to choose a pretty good place with rocks that are worth going and grabbing and bringing back to Earth. It would be really great to send that rover to one of these RSL spots to have the rover maybe sample some of the ice, sample some of the moisture coming off of these things. But all of these sites have been automatically ruled out by NASA. We can't even consider them because of the planetary protection issue, because there might be some little microbe hitching a ride on that 2020 rover that could then go and contaminate that water on Mars. Can't we just give it a Purell bath or something? Hose yeah. it down. It's Purell. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, that's only 99.9%. Right, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're that's right. true. You're says right. it right there on the bottle. <laughs> <laughs>
I did want to say one last thing, though. So if Mike Watney, right, that's the character Mark from Watney. Mark Watney. See, I watched that movie. I didn't even remember. Um, so if he was there and he want, needed to find water, he couldn't have gone to those those sites. Or do you think it wouldn't have mattered? I mean, he was stranded. So. I mean, <laughs> he was kind of in a situation where he could go rogue. And do he can just he do whatever wanted. he wants. But so what kind of movie would you like to see then? Like, I'm going to end with that. So at Casey and Melissa, what kind of movie would you have liked to see after The Martian? I know you liked that. But now, what would you like now? In terms of uh, scientifically accurate. Yeah, scientifically like accurate, getting the public interested movie well i'm not sure my guess is that there's probably a very big audience for this idea but i were i've always wanted to see some sort of west wing style political show about space politics about <laughs> how we're going to decide where how did they decide to i said actually movie get, and you're like full-on series i just want a series i want to binge watch this i want to see netflix or hbo uh, it's going to be Hulu, actually. Well, or Amazon. Amazon. Maybe oh, Amazon yeah. will take it. But the idea is, so the, the Martian, somehow in the Martian, they reference it. They had six missions. They talk about, oh, Congress has got to pay for another one. Yeah. They built this massive spacecraft the size of the International Space Station that rotates between Mars and Earth. How did they get that to happen? Because right, right now, that is not in the cards. Right. And to follow like the band of people who finally make humans, you know, pushing them out to other, to turn us into an interplanetary species... That's some exciting politics there. Yeah. And they could Jeff have all Daniel, sorts of fun stuff. Jeff Daniels was very, like, I don't know, West Wing in that movie. Exactly. He could, and that would be, to me, an, a totally exciting. To actually understand, this is the thing that gets me going, is understanding how and why we choose to explore certain places in space. And most people don't appreciate that, but and we're in a democracy, and we're in a system where we it's discretionary. We just choose to do it or to not do it. Right. And those are some really important decisions that we make and people all have a part in. And they would make a killer uh, political intrigue TV series. Yeah. Before Melissa Jordan, what would you like to see? Science-wise. Not Star Trek. I know that. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. I have no idea. You want to watch my show? I was was thinking about (laughs) your show and, and like, um, if they could somehow, like, if they were, like, okay, we need to go to Mars because they have, like, salt and we need salt bricks for some reason like if they're gonna be like we or like lot, mining we, asteroids. we depleted some resource on earth and we had to go to the forces have taken over and they demand yeah salt. we just needed to like go <laughs> collect this thing from another thing i don't know yeah oh oh now i remember okay yeah good <laughs> so on youtube now they have the 360 videos i don't know if everybody's Ooh, yeah. seen those things but you put the little vr goggles on there and then you can go around and look at but you just do space ones yeah uh because they have a lot of underwater ones because space, space vr is a startup actually kickstarter that they're trying oh, to do that wow. right now i mean because we, we have so much landscapes from mars and you could just walk around right i mean yeah. oh man that would Idea, it's not necessarily Jordan. a movie, but well, no, it would get people no, like involved to like walk, you know, yeah. go around and see the stuff that like yeah. a rover. So you know, Microsoft yeah. is developing a pseudo virtual reality Hololens, Hololens yeah. technology, and they've been testing this with the Curiosity Mars rover team, having people all. So we have these scientists who are distributed all over the country and the world, and. The goal is to get all of the scientists working on this mission, these HoloLens headsets, so that everyone, whether you're in Moscow or New York or Bellingham, Washington, everyone is in the Martian landscape together. 
looking around at the rocks, pointing at things, saying, I think we should drive the rover over there. No, look at that rock over there. That's where we should go. Oh, my God. It's like, wow, but for actual science. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So this is this is happening. And when we talk about what operations are going to be like for the Mars 2020 rover, we might have some kind of virtual component in it as well. Wow. Immersible rover driving. So what's your answer then, Melissa? Okay, so I have a brilliant idea. Okay. That I'm just going to give away. Listeners do not steal our ideas. No, 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 no. I, I really want a listener to take this and run with it because oh, and, I... And give you a little bit of credit. Yeah, give me okay. a little bit of credit. Okay. But okay, so I feel like in a lot of movies about space, there's always that kind of, oh, quick, we have to solve this problem in space fast. And then somehow they quickly build a rocket and send it. Like Mark Watney uh, needed, you know, needed a rescue. And right. They needed to do a resupply for the crew. And so they had to scramble and launch something into space. And then it blew up. And right. then what were they going to do? And that's when the Chinese space agencies stepped in and launched something. Or Armageddon. Oh, no. Asteroid coming. We Quickly, we got to launch Bruce Willis into space. Right. Yeah. So I can't believe that none of these movies have thought to do this yet. Okay, so here's my idea. When you get to that point in the movie where it's quick, we got to get something into space, stat. You go to... You go and you grab one of the three remaining Saturn V rockets left over from the Apollo program. So anyone There's who's three. been... There's there three. are three. Yeah, one's and in Houston, one's at Marshall Space Center in Huntsville, Alabama. And the third is at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. I was hoping you were going to say one was MIA. (laughs) (laughs) We don't know where it is. They will be after this movie. just disappeared that one day after that storm. (laughs) But these things are not replicas. They're not just museum pieces made to educate the public about the historic Apollo program. These were built to be filled with rocket fuel and launched into space. Apollo 18, 19, and 20. Apollo 18, 19, and 20 missions, which were all canceled. So now these rockets just sit there lying on their sides for all to see um, in Houston and Alabama and in Florida. And wouldn't it be awesome for there's some movie where they're like, quick, we got to get Bruce Willis into space, but we need a rocket. What are we going to do? Brush off those old Saturn Vs. Yeah. Fuel them up. Pull get them out, out into pull space. Out, like the old engineers from retirement, you yeah. know? Like, <laughs> yeah. 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 Like, get the whole thing jury rigged and ready to go. That'd be pretty cool. So this is my gift to your listeners. This idea, <laughs> I, I hope many of you write screenplays and just bombard Hollywood with them. Let's get it made. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to end with that. Thank you so much for being here, coming back and talking to us. Hopefully we'll have you on again. We'll we'll talk about Pluto again because there's so much new stuff. But I want to thank you for taking your time come on, to talk to us. Yeah, Thanks. thank you. Yeah, thank you guys. Thank you for joining us. Our producer is Eric Faburetta. The engineer today is Nathan Miller. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet.
gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc. When I rap, you think iodine, nitrate, activate. Red uranium, the only difference is I transmit sound. Balance whistle, balance, then you add a little talent in. Careful, careful with those ingredients. They can explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground.